0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 Update for June 29th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, last week we talked about vaccines for young children. And of course, we've already been vaccinating older children for a while with BNT162b2, the Pfizer vaccine, which has been authorized for those 5 to 11 years old since last fall. So we do have some experience with vaccination in this age group. but it's important to keep in mind that the early studies that served as the basis for the authorization of the vaccine were all performed at a time when early viral variants were circulating. So how have children who received vaccine fared more recently? Today, we published a real-world effectiveness study that addressed this question. How did this study work?
1: Steve, this is another study from Israel, which used medical records of patients cared for by the largest HMO there, a group called CLALIT. It was an observational study of children in the 5 to 11 age group who were vaccinated starting in late November. The study was run in a way similar to other studies performed by the Kleeck group. Each vaccinated child was matched using a number of criteria with an unvaccinated control. During the study period, children were tested when they had contact with an infected person or when they applied for what's called a green pass, which is a certificate which was being used in Israel that would allow people to participate in international travel or in cultural events. Children were followed through the beginning of January when the testing protocol changed and therefore they stopped the study. And because of that, we have a relatively short follow-up time. The investigators looked at two periods, starting two to four weeks after the first vaccine dose and starting one to three weeks after the second dose. So
2: Eric, I think this type of work highlights The speed with which we need to make insight in relation to COVID. Providing insight within weeks of receiving a vaccine and looking at breakthrough infection subsequently is an incredibly short period of time. However, something that we've all had to come to terms with in the setting of COVID is the speed with which we need to make observations and therefore how to look at data as early as possible to provide insights to make better informed clinical and public health decisions. And our colleagues in Israel have really spent a lot of time looking at this type of methodology to help us inform our decision making.
1: I think that's right, Lindsay, but this study points up some of the issues with collecting real-world effectiveness data. The study was based on a testing protocol that was being used in the community. And when that changed, it didn't make any sense to continue with the study. So the investigators are stuck with the vicissitudes of social policy and changing attitudes through the course of their study, which makes it that much more difficult to collect reliable data, particularly over a substantial length of time.
0: So given all of that, what did the investigators learn?
1: The study included more than 90,000 matched vaccinees and controls. A single dose of vaccine produced very little protection, with an estimated effectiveness of about 17%. This rose to slightly over 50% after the second dose. These values were similar for asymptomatic and symptomatic infection. However, there did appear to be a slightly higher rate of protection of younger children. So what did we learn? First, as we already knew, any real efficacy requires a second dose of vaccine. Second, the vaccine has only modest effectiveness against infection. This isn't really that surprising, as this study was performed during a period when the Omicron variant was dominant in Israel, and the absolute values of these numbers seem consistent with studies conducted in adults during the Omicron era. And finally, at this point, the biggest advantage of vaccination is that it continues to provide protection against hospitalization and severe infection, even if it doesn't protect well against symptomatic infection. In this short study, however, there were only three hospitalizations among the study group, making it really impossible to assess how well the vaccines worked. Altogether, I think that these data suggest that the benefits of vaccination are likely to be similar in children as they are in adults, but we are missing important pieces of data.
2: I mean, as you mentioned, Eric, the vicissitudes of studying cohorts of individuals through time when a variety of factors are changing such as the circulating variants, how many prior infections individuals may have had, whether known or not. And then also the challenge of this kind of research in general, in that how well do we understand the dose and regimen that works well in younger individuals? And certain regimens were studied and make sense, but how well have we systematically understood how to optimize vaccination in younger individuals to bring out the strongest immune response. Having said that, there are data that show that it works, and now we have real-world data that continue to extend our understanding of how well it works, albeit with all of
0: the challenges of this kind of research. Do these results change how you think about recommending vaccines to children? So, Steve, I think these data help reassure
2: us That the safety and efficacy appear consistent with prior observations in the establishment studies as well as in relation to data in older individuals. I find that incredibly reassuring. However, there still is a lot that we need to learn, especially in the context of emerging variants and how well these vaccines will bring out protective immune responses. And when I say protective immune responses, we have to think carefully about infection versus clinically significant illness, which is really hospitalization and more severe outcomes. So I find these data very reassuring and encouraging. We still have a lot to learn, and it's a changing field.
1: I'm glad you're reassured, Lindsay. I think these data are not surprising. You can look at them positively or negatively. It really shows us some things that we already knew. We knew that given the more recent variants, and particularly Omicron, the vaccines aren't great at protecting against infection and symptomatic infection, and probably have a limited ability to reduce transmission of the virus. So as public health tools, they've lost a lot of their appeal. Remember, initially, these vaccines were highly effective at preventing infection at all. But on the other hand, the benefit for an individual in protecting them against the severe infections that you were talking about is substantial. And so these vaccines can continue to save lives, even if they aren't so highly effective at limiting the outbreak itself.
2: But, Eric, I think that is challenging how we think about our goals. As we've discussed previously, there are four coronaviruses that circulate as routine colds that many, if not all of us, have had at least one, and none of us cared about. Might SARS CoV 2 become the fifth? And how do we transition from trying to stop transmission to accepting that it is a background cold virus, but we avoid severe illness? I don't think we're there yet, but these types of data with very low rates of severe illness, a handful of cases or less, suggest that at least in this type of population for this short amount of time, there wasn't a lot of severe illness. And ultimately, as a public health perspective, that's important as well as the importance of blocking transmission, but perhaps blocking transmission may turn
0: out to be less important overall. I'd also like to talk about a second study we published today that looked at how long people infected with the Omicron variant continue to shed virus. So how did this study work and what's the takeaway from it?
1: Well, First, it's important to remember that the way we follow infection is generally by using quantitative reverse transcription PCR, or which we usually just call PCR, which is a method of measuring the amount of viral RNA. Measuring RNA is pretty straightforward, and many clinical labs can do it right now. But it doesn't necessarily represent the amount of infectious virus. Actually, quantitating virus is far more difficult, and only research labs are equipped to do that but virus could be a better marker of the ability to transmit infection. In this study, the investigators recruited patients, about half of them infected with the Delta variant and the other half with the Omicron BA-1 variant and followed them longitudinally. Almost all of them were symptomatic and none were on antiviral therapy. About a quarter were unvaccinated. To summarize a lot of descriptive data, about half of the patients were PCR negative by about day 10 and almost all were negative by day 20. This was similar for both Delta and Omicron. Culture conversion, by which I mean the ability to culture virus from sputum, was much more rapid than PCR conversion, with about half of patients turning negative by day four and almost all of them negative by day 10. Again, there really wasn't much of a difference between the variants. The study was relatively small, so it is difficult to know how much to generalize. But I think that it does help reinforce some of our current practices currently, we don't recommend PCR as a measure of infectiousness. We don't know how well culture positivity correlates with transmission either, but it's a good guess that it's a better proxy than PCR positivity. So for me, it does seem that ending isolation before PCR has turned negative remains a reasonable idea. Of course, there is a range of times after diagnosis in which cultures remain positive, so it remains difficult to know about the transmissibility of any infected individual.
2: So, Eric and Steve, I think these data raise many more questions than they answer, and that's often what we see in science. We make insights, and then it leads us in many directions that we want to understand more about. In this particular study, as you point out, Eric, there are a variety of moving parts that have to be carefully weighed including it's a small number of individuals intensively studied because they needed to do serial nasal swabs with both PCR as well as viral culture. So that's individuals through time, all of whom had mild to limited illness and so were at home. They're not hospitalized severely ill. And that you see that there are differences in who was vaccinated and how long previously, which variants were circulating. And all of these variables make it complicated to understand the results. However, what we see is we see that mucosal replication with culturable virus is present in the majority of individuals for quite some time, five days, six days, seven days, you know, typically all clear by day 10, but there's a variability in culturability from the mucosa. And as you pointed out, Eric, this doesn't tell us who's infectious and who is transmitted to others. But it's logical to think there's a continuum between the amount of virus in your nose, the amount of virus that is culturable from your nose, and the likelihood of spreading to others. And these types of studies are important for us to better understand the risk of transmission. And as you commented earlier, Eric, as we think about the public health interventions, this becomes really important as we try to understand how to block transmission. So, I applaud these investigators for being able to do this serial investigation and to help us understand that culture positivity can last for five to seven, eight, nine, 10 days in many individuals, even those who have been vaccinated, stressing the dissonance between systemic illness and immunity and mucosal replication and immunity, and by inference, the risk of transmissibility.
1: Lindsay, I think some people may wonder why if we have a test which is presumably better at predicting transmissibility in individuals that we don't use it routinely? And the answer is pretty simple. Not only is this not widely available, but it takes a long time. By the time you got the results of viral culture, it would be long after the sampling period and you wouldn't know what that person was doing that day. So we're stuck with other imperfect measures or what we're largely doing right now, which is just waiting intervals of time.
2: I agree, Eric. And the crude estimate of the amount of virus in the nose that the PCR can provide insight is correlated with culturability. So it is important that we have real-time information to be able to make clinical decisions or public health decisions the same day. And that's where PCR and antigen testing can provide real-time information, while culture is much more of a scientific inquiry. But there are some relationships there that can and have been
0: leveraged. So practically speaking, most diagnoses these days are probably made using antigen tests. I realize that there was no antigen testing in the study that you're talking about, but more broadly, how do you think that antigen testing might be used to limit transmissibility? So, Steve,
2: that's something we've been talking about and
0: utilizing
2: in our public health response to different degrees in different communities. What I mean by that, and as I was just suggesting, the amount of virus detected by PCR does correlate with culturability. The higher the virus in the nose, the more likely it's culturable. There also is a relationship between the PCR positivity and antigen tests being positive with antigen tests being less sensitive than the PCR tests. Therefore, there is a relationship with the antigen positivity, the viral load, and the likelihood of culture positivity. So in that sense, it's very attractive to use antigen tests as a proxy for the likelihood of contagion. Having said that, there are challenges. There's no one antigen test out there. There are dozens and dozens of antigen tests with different degrees of sensitivity detecting different antigens, which may or may not be as well represented in the given variant that's circulating. So I think the antigen tests are quite helpful, but there are moving targets given the biology of the virus and how one wants to use it to decrease the risk of contagion.
1: As you were saying, Lindsay, this certainly was a major topic of discussion for public health agencies. And in the end, they decided to go with an interval of time after infection, rather than requiring antigen testing to end isolation. And I suspect that they did it for a variety of reasons, including the availability of tests, the equity issues involved in who gets the tests, and the uncertainties that you brought up in the technical aspects of the different test platforms. But I do think there remains a place for testing under certain circumstances, a lot of the patients that you care for, Lindsay, who are immunocompromised, we don't really have any good yardsticks to use for those folks. It's probably a good guess that antigen tests, which are less sensitive than PCR, are likely to be pretty good predictors of transmissibility. So especially given the rapid turnaround with these tests, their relative low cost, it does make sense to be thinking about using these tests under certain circumstances, even if they aren't broadly recommended for the population as a whole.
2: Eric, your point about ease of use and point of care is invaluable in that I can have a PCR test done through the hospital or my doctor's office done early in the day and get the result at the end of the day. And that's pretty quick. The antigen test allows me to do it within 20 minutes of an interaction, such as with family, friends, or those who may be immunocompromised. And I think that our strategy to limit transmission needs to include full vaccination, use of monoclonals in preventative settings that make sense, and then testing both in general, but at point of interaction to protect those who are most vulnerable. So I do think rapid antigen tests have a very important role, but it's not going to be a one size fits all. The rapid tests have certain characteristics that are very advantageous and should be leveraged in situations where it can decrease the risk of those one will be interacting with. And that's something we have to think about as we, as a community, look to minimize spread to those who are most vulnerable. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.